My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Julie Michaud. With rape chants as part of frosh activities reported at St. Mary's University and UBC back in the fall, the issue of sexual assault at post-secondary institutions in Canada has received more national attention this year than usual. However, it is far from a new problem. The specific features of undergraduate university life intersect with misogyny and rape culture, that is, the socially pervasive complex of practices and cultural messages that denigrate women and other gender-oppressed people and that enable, excuse, and erase sexual assault, to make sexual violence, a serious problem everywhere, into a particularly acute one at post-secondary institutions. Yet it is also often a problem that university and college administrations do not do nearly enough to deal with. At Concordia University in Montreal, a campaign initiated by the Center for Gender Advocacy has been working to challenge this. This fall, the A Safer Concordia campaign won an important victory when a university-funded sexual assault center opened on campus, something that most universities lack despite the pressing need. The campaign continues to work towards better supports for survivors and to work with students to challenge gender oppression and rape culture and to build robust practices of consent among students. Michaud has been deeply involved with A Safer Concordia, and she speaks with me about the problem of sexual violence at universities, the tactics taken up by their campaign, their recent victory, and their hopes for the future. I spoke with her by Skype from Montreal. My name is Julie Michaud, and I am the Administrative Coordinator at the Centre for Gender Advocacy, which is a student organization affiliated with Concordia University. Well, the centre has been around since the 80s in different forms. We started out as the Concordia Women's Centre, and then we had a couple of other names. But today, our centre is essentially mandated to work on the promotion of gender equality and gender empowerment, with a particular focus on marginalised communities. So that takes a lot of different forms. We have, for example, a campaign in solidarity with missing and murdered Indigenous women, we do work around reproductive justice. We do a lot on advocacy for the rights of trans people. And A Safer Concordia fits into that sort of spectrum of work that addresses issues that are tied to gender. A Safer Concordia is a campaign that we've had running for a few years now. Initially, it was to campaign to get Concordia to create a sexual assault center. And since Concordia has opened such a centre, there's still lots to do on the issue of education and prevention of sexual assault. It's known that around one in four students will experience some type of sexual assault over the course of their post-secondary education. So that's really huge. We're talking about one quarter of all students. And to many people, that can sound like an overblown figure because we tend to associate sexual assault just with violent rapes. And as a society, we tend to not look at sexual assault in a more comprehensive context. So when we're talking about sexual assault, we're really talking about 
any act of a sexual nature that is unwanted. And when we start to think of it in that way, we realize that, yeah, actually one in four might be kind of a lowball figure. Because if you talk to almost any woman, it's very difficult to find somebody who hasn't at some point in their life been the recipient of some kind of unwanted act of a sexual nature, and many men as well. I think that there are a lot of reasons why incidents of sexual assault are higher when people are in universities. For many people, it's their first time away from their home and their support networks. There's a lot of pressure to make friends and drink and have fun and show that you're cool and up for fun times and not a prude. And then, of course, there's also, you alluded to the the chance at St. Mary's University and, and in UBC, you know, there's this whole aspect of frosh week and party culture, which is especially problematic. There's a higher number of sexual assaults that happen in the very early part of the school year than at other points in the year. And that, I'm sure, is not a surprise to anybody because when you have this situation where there's a culture that's created that you're getting as drunk as possible, and many times there's sort of like games where people are encouraged to disrobe to varying degrees, and there's so much pressure that you don't really feel like you have the option of not participating, of not consenting to that. It shouldn't be surprising that sexual assault is a really big issue. I think we really need to rethink this whole concept of frosh, actually. I'm not... I'm not against drinking, and I think that people can still have a good time and and have fun learning about their new community, but I think there are probably more positive ways of doing it. So tell me what you know about the origins of the campaign. It was a discussion that happened at the board level. So there was talk about the fact that this is a problem, not just at Concordia, but at all post-secondary institutions. And that given that there's such a high number of students who are dealing with these kinds of issues, that there needed to be dedicated support services created to help people when they're going through that kind of thing. And so there was just a decision made that that this would be a priority of the centre to ask Concordia University to create a service that would very concretely provide services to survivors of sexual assault. Initial actions consisted, of course, in meeting up with uh, people within the university administration and just pitching the idea of, hey, let's create a sexual assault center because obviously this is really needed. And then we also did some research around what currently exists at Concordia to help sexual assault survivors, everything from policy to what options are currently in existence in the university's own counseling services, for example, And we found that while there were some services that survivors could access, they weren't really directed at survivors and they didn't have the expertise to really address the particular needs of survivors of sexual assault. We also found that there was no sexual assault policy at Concordia and there still is no sexual assault policy at Concordia, actually. So this is one of the ongoing pieces of work that we have to do on the issue. And any regulations around sexual assault or expectations around student, staff, faculty behavior for those kinds of things were covered in the Code of Rights and Responsibilities, but covered in a pretty restricting way and in a very legalistic, inaccessible language. What kind of responses did the administration initially give to those initial meetings to try and sound out whether they would do this? 
They were supportive in principle, but it's easy to be supportive in principle without really taking it much further. We would get answers along the lines of, we're really happy that you're doing this kind of work, and we definitely see that this is a really important issue, but there's no space to be found at Concordia for an extra service. There's no money to be found, and maybe we can look at other ways to work on this issue together. And we really kept up a really high-profile campaign. And we had a lot of marches, for example. We organized a Take Back the Night march last year, and we're about to do that again this year. We had high-profile speakers come in to talk about rape culture, such as Loretta Ross, who's an amazing anti-sexual violence activist from the U.S. We held a campus forum where we invited people to come and share their personal experiences of sexual assault, which was very powerful because sometimes we get a bit desensitized to statistics and data and we forget or we don't know what the reality is for somebody who's been assaulted and what their life looks like after that. We also held lots of consent workshops. We drew attention to the fact that there were no consent education initiatives on campus. And all of these activities drew a lot of media attention and the student media was very supportive and really kept the issue in the spotlight in such a way that I think the university was just kind of forced to not ignore it. They had to look at it. And I think eventually they were convinced that it really was important, that ultimately the cost would be fairly minimal for the immense benefit that it would bring to the community. And they realized that it would actually make them look good. And I think a lot of times, although this isn't something that was specifically addressed in our meetings with administration, but I think there can be a tendency among university administrators to feel that if they create services for survivors of sexual assault, that that suggests that there's a particularly terrible problem of sexual assault at their institution. The reality is that there's a terrible problem of sexual assault at all post-secondary institutions. Concordia is not unique in that. But now the good thing is that Concordia is fairly unique in having taken the steps to create something to help survivors. So tell me a bit more about some of the concrete elements of the campaign. For example, the marches. We held a Take Back the Night march last year. I don't think that it had actually happened in Montreal for a few years. And we decided that it would be great to start that up again and to really make it specific about the issue of sexual assault at universities. So we made that a big feature of the march. We had a big banner that said, why is our school not safe? We want a sexual assault center at Concordia University. And it was a really visually interesting march as well. Earlier in the fall, we had had some really interesting workshops on the creation of political puppets. And we had these enormous, beautiful, colorful masks that we marched with. All of this kind of created a march that was very visually appealing to the media. So we got a great deal of media attention and it really helped get our message out in a big way. The other thing that we do at our marches is we invite representatives from different community organizations to talk about how the issue of sexual assault affects their specific communities. So, for example, we would have people talk about the issue of sexual assault in relation to trans people or the issue of sexual assault in relation to people with disabilities, for example. We also had representatives from a sexual assault center that is in place at McGill University. It's a sexual assault center that is entirely run by volunteers and doesn't really have any support from the university administration. 
they spoke about the issues that they've noticed in the course of providing services to survivors at McGill. I think what we learned from them was that their services were extremely important, that it was really important to have a peer support component because that can be very important for survivors. Survivors obviously have very different needs one from the other. And so some might really only want professional counseling services and some might be really put off by that and really just want to talk to somebody who's closer to where they are in their life, a fellow student perhaps. And so having those options is a really important thing. We've, we were really campaigning for a centre that was an official body of the university rather than a volunteer-run centre. But what we learned from the Sexual Assault Centre of the McGill Student Society was that it was important to have both. So that's something that isn't yet in place at Concordia, but will be, because that's something that we asked for. So you mentioned that one of the speakers that you brought was Loretta Ross. And from what I understand about her work, it includes a a more expansive analysis of what sexual violence is and its significance than you might find in, for example, the sort of conventional agency sector that responds to violence against women. Can you talk a little bit about why you thought it was important to have that kind of analysis part of your campaign? I think that when we look at sexual assault, we have to look at it as not just a problem between individual perpetrators and individual survivors. Of course, there is personal responsibility and there is this individual situation, but the factors that lead somebody to feel that they can have sex with another person without their consent are also part of an examination of our society as a whole. So people who work on the issue of sexual assault often talk about this term rape culture. It's a way of describing the way in which the society in which we find ourselves minimizes and normalizes sexual assault and blames the victim most often. And if we're looking at how to reduce these individual incidents of sexual assault, we also need to look at how sexual assault or attitudes that normalize sexual assault are perpetuated in society. You said another kind of event that was part of the campaign was a campus forum where people could share stories. Tell me a little bit more about how the event itself happened and about the work that it took to create a space where people felt able to share stories. We were inspired by a group of activists working at Carleton University who had campaigned actually for much longer than we ended up having to campaign for our sexual assault center I think their campaign lasted five or six years, and it was sparked by a very high-profile and violent sexual assault that happened in one of the labs at Carleton University, and the university had responded very badly in a very victim-blaming way, and had kind of, in a sense, dug in their heels perhaps even more because they were feeling the need to defend themselves from any responsibility in the issue. They were really focused on, on blaming the victim. So the activists at Carleton had organized this campus forum and invited people to share their stories. And from the sounds of it, it sounded like it had been a really powerful event. So we thought that it would be something to try and do here at Concordia. We reserved a space at the university that was quite open to public traffic. And we had a a few panelists lined up to open the evening. Some activists from the Sexual Assault Center at McGill one of our former board members who spoke about her own personal experiences, and at the time, uh, Concordia Student Union counselor 
who's currently the president of Concordia Student Union, who also spoke about her own experiences of being in an abusive relationship. And so we had these panelists who got the evening going. And then we also had a just a freestanding microphone at the front of the room. And we said, now, if you want to share something, you can. You could come up here and share an idea, share hope for the sexual assault center that we hope someday will be created at Concordia University. Or you can also share a personal experience. And we really didn't know what to expect. We knew that that was kind of asking a lot from people. We didn't know whether people would even really want to share their experiences, but they did. And several people came up to the mic that evening and shared their stories in really articulate and moving ways that really drew out so many of the important threads that are so often missed in the cursory look at the issue of sexual assault. And the audience was very supportive, very attentive, I actually got the sense that it could have gone on much longer than it had. And I had been slightly anxious before we did it. I, I wondered whether people would feel perhaps somewhat re-traumatized in the telling and hearing of these stories. But my overall sense was that it had actually served a somewhat therapeutic purpose to create this space where people could talk about their experiences in a very open way and in a way that felt very supported. And we also did have some peer support volunteers on hand as well for people who needed support, who needed individual support during the event. So overall, it was a really, it was really a very incredible event. And it really helped a lot of people in the community have a more concrete sense of what it is that survivors, particular survivors who are students, go through when they experience sexual assault and what specific things they might need after that kind of experience. So one of the other forms of engagement with students that you mentioned was workshops about consent. Tell me a little bit more about what those workshops aim to accomplish, but also the kind of engagement you got back from students that were taking the workshops. The fact that we don't have discussions about what consent is in this society is, in my opinion, the number one reason why sexual assault is so pervasive, because we think that non-consent only exists if there's a violent struggle or if somebody shouts no many times or something like that. But in fact, not consenting is much simpler than that. It's just not agreeing or not wanting to do something that someone wants to do. So when somebody is in a position of some kind of dependence, be it for care or financial support or what have you, they don't have the option of saying no necessarily, or they might say no and it might not be respected and they don't have any recourse. And that's also a situation that can happen anytime there is a power imbalance in a particular relationship. So, for example, at universities, that would be if a professor or a TA made a sexual advance on a student, we have to ask ourselves, well, does the student really have the luxury of being able to say no to that advance? Or do they feel that there would be some repercussion to saying no? So one of the things that we try to do when we do education around consent is point out the fact that if for whatever reason a person feels that no is not an acceptable answer, you can't actually say yes, you can't actually consent. We inspired ourselves from the consent workshops that happen at McGill University, a workshop series that was initiated by the volunteer-run sexual assault centre there. In that program, every student living in residence must attend a three-hour workshop on the issues of sexual assault, consent, gender, and sexuality, which is pretty incredible. I went and learned how their workshop functions, 
what material they cover. And I facilitated some of the workshops at McGill just to kind of get my feet wet and find out how it worked and learn to facilitate in the company of people who had facilitated those workshops in the past. I saw immediately that it was really an incredibly valuable experience for students and that for most students, it was probably the first time that they'd ever had a conversation about sexual assault. For many, it probably is the only conversation that they'll ever have about consent in their life, which is a very sad thing. There's so few places in Canada where students get any kind of sex education in high school. And if they do, it's usually sort of just very anatomically focused. There's nothing about what is consent or, you know, the fact that the point of having sex is to experience pleasure. And that is a huge aspect of why consent is so important. And so when I facilitated these workshops, I was really struck by the fact that we really needed to start at very rudimentary levels in the conversation. So really starting right from what is sexual assault and dispelling this notion that sexual assault is just something that happens when a violent stranger attacks you in a dark alley and really talking about how that is largely a myth. Sexual assault almost never happens that way. Usually it's somebody that you know, over 80% of survivors know the person who is the perpetrator. It doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be penetrative. And there doesn't even need to be an intention on the part of the perpetrator to commit sexual assault. The person doesn't have to have the thought in their head, I'm going to rape that person. They just have to neglect to ask for the person's consent or ignore a person's non-consent. So these conversations were really wide-ranging, and they gave students a chance to speak really freely. And I think that is a huge part of why the workshop format is so important. Sometimes when I've spoken with people here at Concordia about the importance of getting a similar thing in place, there's been kind of resistance, particularly on, on the issue of the length of the workshops, for example. They'd like us to package it in this quick and snappy YouTube generation commercial version of a consent workshop. And that doesn't work because people need to have enough time to realize that they're not going anywhere for a while. So they may as well just say what's on their mind. And they may as well just express whatever victim-blaming ideas they might have so that they can be challenged. And, and that's the only way that people learn to drop those ideas, is, is to, to have conversations with people and to be challenged. And in the course of those workshops, there are a lot of different activities that are focused on. They're very interactive. We talk about the particularities of what is required in order for something to be consensual. So for example, that obviously has to be mutual, it has to be continuous. Just because you said yes to one thing doesn't mean that you said yes to everything else that will happen, that it can't be coerced, that the absence of a no is not the same thing as a yes. So all of these and other ideas around consent are discussed. We talk about rape culture. We talk about this idea that sexual assault, while it is a, a problem between individual survivors and perpetrators, it is also much more than that. And it's a problem that is fed and encouraged by societal ideas and ideas that tell us that victims are the ones who cause their own sexual assaults. And we really work at dismantling those ideas. We work at shifting the discourse on sexual assault prevention away from the one that we hear so often that tells people how to not get raped and we change it to a position of how to not rape. This is really the practical skill that we're trying to teach people in these workshops is how to not violate people's physical boundaries. We did bring the workshops from McGill to Concordia 
we presented some of them in residence and the response was really positive. I think people were really grateful to have that information. And so that's something that needs to happen in a more institutionalized way. It hasn't as of yet been rolled out in a mandatory way. It needs to be something that we don't have to fight for every year, which is kind of how it's been going so far. And what are some of the ways that you're hoping the center will be able to grow and change as it finds its role? I think there need to be more people brought in. So currently, J.D. Drummond, who is the coordinator of the center, has a lot on her plate to essentially build this new service from scratch. And there's an enormous amount of work to do, everything from providing crisis intervention and advocacy for survivors, helping them to navigate whatever other services within the university they might want to access. And there'll also be the issue of training volunteers to offer peer support. That is a huge job in and of itself. There will be the issue of trying to roll out consent workshops in a more comprehensive way. So there's an enormous amount of work for JD to do. And I think realistically, there should be more than one person to do all of that work. And now that the A Safer Concordia campaign has won this really important victory, what's the focus of the campaign going to be? Currently, a big part of our focus is on supporting the work that JD is doing, because as I just mentioned, she has an enormous amount of work to do in the next year. And also because the university has only committed to running this for one year at this current time, we want to do what we can to make it a success and ensure that it will become a permanent part of Concordia. And as I mentioned, we still do not have um, policy on sexual assault at Concordia. So this is another one of our focuses. We're really trying to help make consent workshops an institutionalized part of Concordia. In addition to getting these workshops to be mandatory in residence, it would be excellent to create a, a similar setup for a lot of different student groups for sports teams, for example, where there tends to often be a more intense version of rape culture and an entitlement to other people's bodies than elsewhere. I mean, the work that can be done on this issue is pretty endless because there are so many wrong ideas in society about sexual assault that need to be countered. And people can't really remove themselves from society and from pop culture. We see these messages all the time that reinforce the idea that, that women are responsible for preventing their own sexual assaults and that most of the time they're lying if they say they've been sexually assaulted, which is completely false and quite hateful. So there's always this sort of baseline misunderstanding of the issue that needs to be worked on. You have been listening to my interview with Julie Michaud, a staff person at the Centre for Gender Advocacy at Concordia University and an organizer with the A Safer Concordia campaign. To learn more about the campaign, you can go to genderadvocacy.org, that's all one word, genderadvocacy.org, and search for A Safer Concordia. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 